Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the exciting things it can do for people and our planet. My name is Kevin Fulda and I'm a professor at the University of Florida. And this week, we're going to talk about a potential therapy for sickle cell disease. Now, sickle cell anemia affects many people, predominantly in the African-American population. And it's always been a devastating disease that several therapies are available, but nothing perfect. And we'll talk about that today with Dr. Brenda Eustace. And she's the director and head of discovery biology at Vertex Pharmaceuticals in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to the podcast, Brenda. Hi, Kevin. Delighted to be here. Hey, really nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for this. I've, I've been in love with this topic since I've read it. Let's start out with the real easy part of this. And maybe the background is how many people are affected by uh, sickle cell anemia? I mean, is it something that's more predominant in the US or all over the world? Where are we with the disease? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, It is predominant in the United States. Uh, There are about 95,000 patients in the United States that have sickle cell anemia or often called sickle cell disease. But really, it's a worldwide problem, and there are millions of patients worldwide, predominantly in um, sub-Saharan Africa and in India, that have sickle cell disease. And and what's the biochemical basis? I think it's a mutation that happens or that you're born with. But well, let's why don't you just uh, let's talk about that? What how does it happen? Sure. Yeah, it is. It is a genetic mutation. And an interesting story, actually. Um, Linus Pauling was the first one to describe this as a molecular disease. And that was actually on my birthday. It was reported in Science Magazine, Science the Journal, um, in 1949. So 70 years ago, he described what the functional cause of sickle cell disease was. Of course, he didn't know what genes were at the time. Uh, subsequently, we learned that it is a mutation in a gene that's expressed solely in red blood cells. Um, in, uh, it's part of the hemoglobin gene uh, complex. Hemoglobin is obviously the protein that carries oxygen Um, in your red blood cells through your bloodstream. And sickle cell disease is caused by a mutation in one of the components of hemoglobin. It's called beta globin. And this mutation causes the tetramer, which is four units of hemoglobin to form improperly. And instead of being a nice um, four person molecule, it actually forms these polymers that form long chains within the red blood cells. Those long chains cause the red blood cell to change its shape from a nice round shape to one that looks like a sickle, like what farmers use in the field to harvest hay. It's like a kind of like a C shape. And you can imagine anywhere that cells go in your blood that have an abnormal shape don't flow properly. So these patients who have sickle cell disease have problems all over their body wherever blood is found. Um, This uh, causes blockages, which cause a variety of um, symptoms downstream. And the mutation, though, was under positive selection because it does protect from malaria, if I'm not mistaken. Is that true? That's exactly right. Yeah, the, the parasite isn't able to, um, to survive in 
uh, sickled cells. And in fact, um, patients or people who have one copy of the mutation don't have any symptoms of sickle cell disease, but still can't get infected by this parasite. So it's persisted through all these years um, and all this time because of that fact. And, and maybe another question about the disease itself. Is it something that is a late onset thing or do, do kids actually have this? Because I never really, you know, from, from my understanding, it always seemed like this was something that was associated with aging. Yeah, certainly you know, people who have sickle cell disease have a reduced lifespan, um, 40, 40 to 50 years, but it does affect children. In fact, there are many uh, stories of, of babies who, you know, are, are you know, ha- cry out in pain because of the disease, um, but it certainly persists throughout life. And um, these patients have, like I said, a variety of symptoms that, you know, primarily result in uh, acute and chronic pain but also they have, are at increased risk of strokes um, and other sorts of uh, organ damage um, in addition. Yeah, so it's something that really does affect quality of life. And how, how many people are affected by this? Yeah, in the U.S., there's about 95,000. Wow, so it's a substantial population. And how do you care for this right now based on current therapies? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these patients um, present with pain in emergency rooms, um, acute pain, and they're given uh, pain medications. Um, But there is one uh, approved therapy that's used commonly. It's called hydroxyurea. And it's, it works in some patients, um, but it only works partially. So there really is uh, a need for, for additional therapies for these patients. That's really strange. I can picture the molecule in my head, but how, how would hydroxyurea work to resolve a hemoglobin um, uh, component issue? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, the mechanism of action is a little unclear. Um, we do know that hydroxyurea, hydroxyurea does cause elevation of fetal hemoglobin in some patients, and I'm sure we'll talk about that as a um, mechanism of action but it does also have some anti-inflammatory activities that probably contribute to its activity. Ah, and you, so you said the magic word there with fetal hemoglobin. <laughs> so, so in a really big general way, what's the approach that Vertex Pharmaceuticals has devised to solve the problem? So we have been working uh, with a partner called CRISPR Therapeutics. It's another company uh, located in Cambridge, Massachusetts here. And what we're trying to do is discover and develop uh, therapeutics that use gene editing, and in particular, uh, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing. So what we are doing is an ex vivo gene editing approach to come up with a one-time functional cure for sickle cell patients. This is really cool. And and so we're going to take a brief break here, but I would urge the, any listeners to stand by because this is uh, something that's revolutionary for this disease and probably a prelude to many others um, that are associated with um, uh, hemopoietic uh, misdirection. And that, we'll talk about all this in just a moment. You're listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Brenda Eustace. She's with Vertex Pharmaceuticals and their cure or potential cure for sickle cell disease. We'll be back in just a moment. Saturday. Tune into the podcast on Saturday, August 17, 2019. It's the 200th episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. One day after Elvis Death Day, more guests sharing their solutions for people and the planet. 
gene editing to cure animal disease. Food therapies for cancer and viral disorders. Next generation crop technologies for sustainable farming. CRISPR-Cas9. Screening out the gate with new technologies in the race to feed 10 billion people. Hydrogen crops, less resource dependence, fewer pesticides, and more sustainability. Biotechnology. Covering disinformation that generates fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Medicine needing technology for reaching the industrialized world farmer and the food insecure. Saturday, 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 August 17, 2019, the 200th episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. 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 TalkingBiotechPodcast.com. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. Today we're talking about a potential therapy for sickle cell disease. We're speaking with Dr. Brenda Eustace. She's the director and head of discovery biology at Vertex Pharmaceuticals in Boston, Massachusetts. Let's go back to how this works. Now, what's the general idea behind the CTX001 therapy? So CTX001 is an ex vivo gene editing therapeutic to treat sickle cell disease uh, patients. What we do for CTX with CTX001 is that we use the power of stem cells to be able to uh, potentially provide a, a one-time functional cure for people with this disease. Um, CTX001 is based on an established protocol of bone marrow transplant where we can collect blood or hematopoietic stem cells from patients and edit them and then give it back to them um, in an edited form so that they uh, have this functional cure. Wow, that's really cool. You know, it's kind of a funny story. I, When I was a grad student, I gave bone marrow for research about 60 times. Wow, no way. <laughs> yeah, they, they pulled it out of my pelvis about 20 mils at a time whenever they needed it. I, they said that I was... Uh, it was cheaper to get me than it was to get a baboon. Wow. <laughs> I guess I'm not surprised. <laughs> no, it was, but um, let's, let's go back to the, to the process here. So the uh, let's, you know, drill into this a little bit. So you have an ex vivo series of stem cells and you do this Cas9 gene editing. So do you, which gene is being edited in that process? Right. So we know a lot about the uh, biology of fetal hemoglobin. So fetal hemoglobin is a form of hemoglobin that's expressed during gestation and slightly after birth, and then it gets it becomes decreased through gene, genetic regulation. And hemoglobin then is the adult form of hemoglobin. So fetal hemoglobin is a naturally occurring gene and protein that, that everyone has when they're first born. What we do is we edit a gene that acts as a break to the expression of fetal hemoglobin. So it's a gene called BCL11A, and it basically sits on the fetal hemoglobin gene promoter and stops it from being expressed. So what we do is we edit the BCL11A gene so that it's no longer expressed in red blood cells or erythroid cells. So it's a specific, um, precise genetic alteration of the expression of this gene BCL11A, allowing fetal hemoglobin to become re-expressed. And what's really cool about fetal hemoglobin is that it actually can compensate for the mutated sickle hemoglobin. 
and can um, can functionally cure these patients. Um, we, we know actually that there are people that have um, what's called hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin. These are adults that have fetal hemoglobin that's retained throughout adulthood. And people who have that, along with a sickle cell mutation, don't show symptoms or show reduced symptoms. So we, we know that this should work in, in people because of the evidence that's in human biology. Wow, that's really cool. Now, but but the target for this thing, BCL11A, um, it's, a, it's a chromatin remodeling protein in general. And so are you making a edit that affects only red blood cells or does it have other collateral effects that uh, you might have to be thinking about? Right. There's an interesting story there too. So BCL11A was identified in what's called a genome-wide association study. So a GWAS study as it's called. And what they found in the literature, this was several years ago, was that um, changes in one particular area of a non-coding region of BCL11A were implicated in uh, people having higher levels of fetal hemoglobin. And this region is in an intron of BCL11A, and it's now called what we know as the erythroid-specific enhancer. So when we disrupt that erythroid-specific enhancer, we only change the levels of BCL11A in erythroid cells or red blood cells and in no other cell type. Wow, that's really cool. So you have the specificity because I know in prepping for today, I started reading about how, you know, BCL11A having all these other roles and potentially in other diseases. And so kind of monkeying with this um, regulator of, of, of chromatin remodeling seemed to maybe have some strange edges, but you just cleared that up for me. Uh, but what, what is different about fetal hemoglobin from regular hemoglobin? Fetal hemoglobin looks a lot like regular hemoglobin. There are very few changes in, in the protein, but what it allows um, mothers to do is transfer oxygen more efficiently to their, um, their, the fetus. Okay. So what's the advantage of flipping it to a different kind? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It was an evolutionarily designed um, method to, to promote the life of the fetus um, uh, throughout gestation. Um, perhaps it's not necessary now, but uh, in the evolutionary past, it, it might have been necessary. Well, well, I mean, for the hemoglobin, I guess for the fetus, there's probably some interesting advantages here and there. But um, as an adult, why do we bother to make a different one? Right. Yeah, it's 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 a good question. Um, I think it's it's just a historical evolutionary pathway that that was evolved for a particular reason. You know, perhaps in in the early early days when uh, fetuses didn't have as as much um, survival advantage. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I you, also, if, you know, a fetus isn't out, um, you know, running in a savanna either. You know, and and maybe maybe doesn't need that upper saturation that we that we need. Right now, so this this idea is you um, it's a called myoablation where you're able to remove the or, or, or maybe you can explain it. If a patient comes in for this kind of therapy, let's just say this thing works perfectly. How would it work? You would you take the, the stem cells out, you do the edit, then you put them back in. But uh, you do you have to destroy the bone marrow of the patient with radiation first, or how does that work? Yeah, so it's um, it's a process um, as you as you described called um, ablation. So after the cells are edited um, at a at a manufacturing site, they're then shipped back to the clinical site, and the patient um, then has their bone marrow uh, ablated. And we use a chemotherapy to do that. 
Um, what it does is it makes space in the bone marrow for the cell, the edited cells to be infused back in, um, repopulate the bone marrow, and then produce all of the cell types of the blood um, going forward. And, and this is what was a really cool thing, uh, that when you put those cells back in, you can just put them right into the circulatory system and they figure out where to go, right? That's right. They hone right back into the bone marrow. That's so crazy. Like they, (laughs) it's really neat to think about that. Um, And something similar and maybe another extension of this. So you put the edited cells back into the, into the body, they get into the bone marrow. But one of the drawbacks to this technique in my mind is you have to edit a patient's own bone marrow. Mm -hmm. And, and so are there any efforts, and I know they've done this with amyloid leukemia, can you use gene editing to remove all the HLA markers to make a generic cell type that can survive um, immune, immunological surveillance and actually deliver the edited uh, gene that removes the uh, adult hemoglobin that allows only production of fetal hemoglobin, but do it in a generic cell type that wouldn't uh, require one patient's own cells to have to be edited every time? I think it's theoretically possible, and I know you know there are other kinds of um, gene therapies, CRISPR gene therapies, that, where they're using um, their, uh, approaches like CAR T cells, where they're trying to do exactly that. Um, we certainly haven't tried it in this program, but you know we you know we're excited to be you know the first um, to come to patients with this uh, therapy. Um, but certainly, there are going to be future developments that that we and others will make to um, to improve the the uptake and, and the, this functional cure for people. That's really wonderful. I, so right now it, you're in clinical trials or where is it now? That's right. Uh, we've announced that we've dosed um, our first patients, uh, the patient in sickle cell disease and also in a related disease called beta thalassemia. Yeah, that's great. And, and so this is all really recent stuff, isn't it? That's right. Over the past six months or so. Wow. So it's really exciting that that's happening. And um, when will you be able to evaluate their milestones and how well they're doing? Right. Yeah, we're, we're excited to, to hear about the outcome for these patients. And we'll certainly announce it when we have enough data to, to make some conclusions. That's cool. Can you come back on and talk about it with me when it happens? Uh, I'd love to. <laughs> well, this is really cool. So, but is this really a practical kind of treatment? I mean, we, I mean, we talked a little bit about this before, um, but is this something that only people who are severely affected would undergo? Or would this be something that, say, a genetic test as a child would reveal the, the likelihood of being, you know, uh, a homozygous um, sickle cell patient that you would, pro- like say, preventatively do this kind of therapy. Right. Yeah. So right now, you know, our clinical trials are um, designed to start with the most severe patients. And we hope that we can make developments to allow this treatment to come to, to all patients, all sickle cell patients. Um, right now we are treating, um, adults and that's usually how clinical trials, uh, go at first. And, you know, depending on what the results are, we'll be able to extend that to, to younger and younger, um, people. Well, this just makes me so happy. You also mentioned, um, beta thalassemia and what is that disease and does it work with the same exact edit? Right. It, it does work with the same exact edit. It is also, we can also use CTX001 to treat patients with beta thalassemia. Um, collectively, sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia are categorized as um, hemoglobinopathies. So these are um, diseases of hemoglobin. 
And beta thalassemia has uh, mutations in uh, the same gene, beta globin, part of hemoglobin, but instead of having that one mutation that causes uh, the polymerization of hemoglobin in sickle cells, what it does is it either reduces or eliminates the production of that beta globin gene and protein. So beta thalassemia patients have severe anemia, um, and they often have uh, transfusions at very regu- regular intervals to just to survive. Wow. So that's really great that the, uh, you'll be able to essentially solve two problems with one, uh, one therapy. Well, I guess if we had to think about this and get out the crystal ball, it sounds very optimistic, but what's the general feeling inside Vertex Pharmaceuticals about, you know, where this is and where it's going? We're extremely excited to be part of this, you know, first in class therapy, um, this ex vivo gene editing therapy for sickle cell and beta thalassemia patients. And, you know, we've been working in research on this for the last several years. Uh, but we have a long road to go. We really are just initiating our clinical trials now, and it's a years-long process that will take some time to read out and to, to fully understand um, uh, what we have here. Yeah, I guess it's a long road. Do you, do you anticipate any unusual regulatory hurdles? Since this is like a brand new kind of therapy, Is there? Uh, does it have to go through the years and years of giant numbers of, of, of people to be um, tested before they can approve it? Every clinical trial is a little different, and you know we speak with regulators regularly to get their input on you know how many uh, people we will need to treat to to be able to see an appropriate statistically significant effect. Um, you know, we hope that you know, we will have a dramatic effect on on the outcomes for these patients, and we won't need as many patients to see that. But uh, the results have yet to to come. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. If if people wanted to learn more about Vertex Pharmaceuticals and these exciting therapies, where would they look? I'd go right to the source. You can go to vrtx.com and all of uh, Vertex Pharmaceuticals social handles are there and information about this uh, program and others that we're working on. Okay, and I'll make sure I have a link to the website on the on our website for the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brenda Eustace uh, from Vertex Pharmaceuticals. I really appreciate your time on this and best wishes to you and the company going forward and really finding an exciting cure for a very um, uh, horrible disease that too many people suffer from. Thank you, Kevin. It was a real pleasure. And thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. This is episode 199 as we continue our quest to hit a million downloads. Thank you very much for listening. Always refer to a friend. We're getting excited to move into, we're getting excited. I'm getting excited. (laughs) Um, uh, Produced and everything by me. Uh, Getting excited to move into the 200th episode uh, next week. Thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.